Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Victoria Pynchon. Victoria is the co-founder of She Negotiates, a consulting firm and training workshop for women that nests today's most effective negotiation strategies in the gender culture in which women do business. Although Victoria's focus is now on closing the wage and income gap for women, she has been training lawyers and business people of both genders in mutual benefit negotiation strategies since 2005. The work of She Negotiates has been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, The New York Times, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and dozens of smaller news outlets. As a lawyer, mediator, and author, Victoria turns 25 years of commercial litigation into the collaborative possibilities of interest-based negotiation. Since earning her legal master's degree in dispute resolution, she has published two books, The Grown-Ups ABCs of Conflict Resolution and Success as a Mediator for Dummies. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about negotiation. What is it? And what is the cost for women of not negotiating? Vicky takes us through how to negotiate and we discuss three scenarios and how to apply your negotiation skills there. Vicky is an expert in negotiation and mediation. She has a wealth of knowledge to share. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Please note that the podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Victoria, welcome to the Purse Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. It's exciting to be here and to talk to you again. And we were saying just now that the last time we spoke was probably back in 2012. So it's great to have you on and obviously we're going to be talking about how things have moved on. But before we get into it, I'd love it if you could share a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today. And we are talking about negotiation. So I'd be interested to hear about a very tough negotiation that you've had and that you won. Yeah. Well, the journey has been law school to legal practice. I wasn't among the very first women who were in the legal practice, but I would say probably most women were in family law and I went into litigation and trial work in commercial disputes. And so it was heavily male dominated. I'd say 90% of my clients were male, 80% of my colleagues were male, probably more than that. So I have to say it was a scary environment. It was exhilarating because I find breaking boundaries exhilarating. I find hostile environments an awfully interesting play field to work on. So a lot of women will say to me, oh, wow, that must have been hard. And I say, yeah, but it was exciting. It was fun to be there and just kind of meet the challenges. So although I do have interesting hard negotiations, but probably the biggest hard negotiation was negotiating your way into a male-dominated workplace. Uh, And I think that's still hard for women who are in tech. I have a lot of tech clients, 50% probably of my clients are in tech. And it's still pretty male-dominated, and a lot of women are working in what 
we now call toxic workplaces. We used to just call workplaces. So I did that for 25 years and it got a lot better, but the bigger my cases got, the more that was at stake, the more I felt like we were wasting money, having clients pay huge sums of money. And my final specialty was environmental insurance coverage litigation. I represented Lloyds of London and my now husband represented the oil industry. So we were actually adversaries. So that's a little bit about how little we care about really who's going to win. We just want to win. So it's a battle and it's a lot of unpleasantness and you tire of it. And so I wanted to do something different. I took a mediation course. It taught me to negotiate, even though I'd been negotiating kind of blindly based on work experience. And I started mediating and mediating had me helping lawyers settle litigation. So I was helping them negotiate. It's like assisted negotiation. And there's probably no more difficult clients than lawyers for whom settlement is not winning. In some ways it's superior to going to trial because then you don't have to worry about losing. But still, it's tough. I started a blog on negotiation because I wanted to show my mostly male mediation clients that I was a hard-headed businesswoman and not some kind of marshmallow roasting, feel-good, hippie, love-everybody woman mediator, which was pretty much the view at the time I entered mediation in the early 2000s. And women started calling me. And the women really wanted to learn. And the women learned so fast and they immediately applied it to everything. They applied it to their work, to their children, to their husband, to their community. And many of them experienced and still experience a sense of transformation because mediation skills give you power and autonomy and purpose and independence. So it goes far beyond just getting a cheaper price on a rug in a foreign bazaar. So that's a fast forward of it. Now, if you were to define what negotiation is and why it's important, what would you say? I would say like Miss America, world peace. And then then I would say, particularly for women who are the world's greatest negotiators in the domestic sphere. All you have to do is think back to a difficult Thanksgiving with an angry uncle or a crazy friend and the people who are negotiating the differences among the people at the table are the women, right? Mm -hmm. So we're really, really good at that. We just haven't taken it into the commercial sphere. So we have long defined, my business, She Negotiates, is long defined negotiation is simply a conversation whose purpose is agreement. So generally when you're in a negotiation, the thing that you have most in common with your negotiation partner is you both want to accomplish the same thing. For instance, attorneys both want to settle the case. An employer both wants to incentivize you and you want to be incentivized. A prospective employer wants to hire you and you want to be hired. So really what it is, is a problem solving discussion. It's not adversarial. Women tend to think that when they take their natural negotiation skills into the workplace, it's supposed to be an adversarial process. 
but all of the best business schools in the country and internationally don't teach adversarial negotiation anymore. They teach something called interest-based negotiation, which requires all those skills that you have around the dinner table, finding out what people really want. What do they desire? What are they afraid of? So the tendency to be interested in other people and ask them a lot of questions as opposed to promoting yourself all the time, that is a skill being taught to the Masters of Business Administration students at Harvard and Yale and Berkeley and Stanford and probably at universities in the UK as well. And what it means for women is generally more human resources, more material resources, more benefits, and ability to navigate, say, special education programs, which is huge here. I have a number of friends who have special needs kids, and negotiating a program for a special needs kid is like negotiating peace in the Middle East. I mean, it is really, really hard. So it influences every part of your life. It gives you a greater degree of power, but it's not power over, it's power with. That's really important. That's something my friend Gloria felt, who talks all the time about, it's not power over, it's power with, it's power sharing. I mean, Hamas actually wants something. It's not simply to destroy Israel. They have a set of desires as does Israel. It's not simply to destroy Hamas, but the way we're framing that conflict now is all or nothing. Israel goes into the sea or Hamas withdraws and never complains again about anything having to do with the occupation of their territories. Not that I should bring politics into the discussion, but it's everything. And the more that everyone learns the process of peacemaking, which is the purpose of negotiation, is to find peaceful resolutions to disputes over resources. So it's everything. Your kid wants his sister to stop playing with the Legos, and you want 30% of the equity in the startup. It's all the same skill. Absolutely. Women have this natural tendency to want to relate and understand the other person and find a way through that sort of win-win. And it's almost like men are having to be taught how to negotiate in this very peaceful way. Yes. It's not adversarial. It really is about finding a way through together. It's not win-lose. It's win-win. Right. One of my favorite settlement stories is a partner of mine who is also representing Lloyd's against the state of California in a major contamination insurance dispute. And they had a settlement conference and one of the lead attorneys put a number on the table about what he expected Lloyd's to pay. And my colleague said, and that would be in Lyra. And those guys slammed their briefcases, left the room, and they did not talk settlement for five more years. Goodness. If we had more women at the negotiation table, we'd probably break through, create better results. Right. If you have at least three women on a board of directors, it immediately impacts the bottom line favorably. Yeah. So, you know, we've been making the business case for women for a long time. 
but it's tough culturally. Mm. I was just yesterday, women call and they say, you know, I'm a terrible negotiator and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, let me start with, you're not a terrible negotiator. Mm. Why do you think you're a terrible negotiator? Well, I've been told we're terrible negotiators. Mm. You know, and there are things that men do better than we do. They ask for more. They demand more than we do. Another thing my clients tell me is, I'd rather be happy than rich. And I love to say, you can be happy and rich. (laughs) (laughs) Why not have both? (laughs) You have to make a choice. I want to get quite specific now about the cost of women not negotiating. And there are many reasons why women might not negotiate, which we'll talk about. But when women don't negotiate for whatever reason, what does it cost them over the course of their life? What impact does it have on their net worth? Every time I look at these figures, I am shocked by them. And I think it's really important just to remind everyone what that cost is so that we pay attention because as we know, compounding is both positive and negative. Every little decision that you make about whether or not to negotiate and how much, whether it comes to your salary or as an entrepreneur negotiating, how much equity you're going to give up or not, it makes a massive difference in the end. So the numbers are a million to two million dollars. I actually looked it up today to see, has it changed? (laughs) And it hasn't changed. And for many women, it's many figures more than that. I would say that the women who I talk to every day are making $150,000 to $750,000 a year. Mm -hmm. I am happy to report that the pandemic has had the same effect in today's economy, or somewhat the same effect, as the plague had in the Middle Ages for the absolute transformation of the labor market. So in the Middle Ages, you'll remember, especially in England, serfs lived on the land and they were like kind of like slaves. They're like sharecroppers in the Southern United States. Plague wiped out a quarter of the population. Suddenly, The serfs no longer had to stay on the land. They were no longer bound to the land. They became a wandering workforce. And they became a workforce that was needed because there weren't enough of them to work the land. And so it transformed the serf system into a paid workforce, which is dramatic. Today, I read that minimum wage employers are paying starting bonuses. They're offering to pay workers college education. Some of them are offering to pay one of their children's college educations. They are guaranteeing entry into managerial training. And so even at the bottom of the workforce now, where most people say you cannot negotiate because I can be replaced at any moment, no longer true. So Minimum wage workers can now also negotiate, which thrills me because working at the top of the food chain is gratifying, but my philosophical political heart is with the more underrepresented people who are really struggling. Yeah. So I'm happy to see that. That's really, really good news. And so much is changing. Now, why... Is negotiating 
or asking for more, so more money specifically if you're an employee or a freelancer or you're talking to investors, why is that more challenging for women or is it? It is way more challenging for women and it is all enculturation. It's the water we swim in. There are sanctions, social sanctions for stepping outside our gender role. I've certainly experienced it in major ways, especially early in my legal career. Sometimes they're called microaggressions, but the social sanctions include taking the job away. In the 11 years I've been consulting with women, that's only happened twice because we have a little work around that, but it's there. So really it's like a dog being kicked. The dog will start avoiding human beings and women will start avoiding negotiation because they're slapped on the hand for doing so. So we've internalized that we shouldn't ask for something for ourselves. We should be grateful we have a job. They let us in. Thank you so much for letting us in the kitchen. We won't complain about the heat. We'll try and keep a low profile. We won't ask for a lot for ourselves. So it's both internal and it's also external. If this is changing, I mean, I can tell you that my Gen Y clients are bold. <laughs> Good. A lot of bold young women out there who just need to know, what do I do to do this? How do I get over this? I know that I am asking for too little. Mm. So that's significant progress. Yeah. And I think we have to thank technology for that as well. We can access the information that we need so much more quickly. Yes. We can connect to other women so much more easily who are trying to do the same thing. And that's incredibly empowering, isn't it? Yes. And we should be asking our male colleagues what they're making. Yeah. Because one of the reasons there's a wage gap is because we talk to our girlfriends. Yeah. And we're often making more money than them. We also tend to be grateful, just in general. Mm. Grateful it's spring. <laughs> almost summer. Grateful the pandemic might almost be over. Grateful we have a job. Grateful for our children, no matter how difficult they are. Some of that is enculturated, you know, it's taught, but it's not a bad thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with women. Mm. There are good women, there are bad women, there are mediocre women, but it's really just we have to be more conscious about how we use our really amazing skill set in commercial settings. And I think what's really important is that employers, for example, as do say investors, need to become much more aware of what women have to deal with. So the gender bias, the, the pushback that women experience when they're negotiating, when they're asking for more that men just don't have to deal with. And so we want to see a much more aware environment within which women have to swim in order to try and balance this all out. But as you say, there's a lot that women do, which is unique and which just needs to be appreciated rather than changed. Yes. On the other side, they need to sort of stop and think, oh, okay, maybe I can learn something here and change what I do or adapt. Right. And I do want to put in a plug for men here. Men may have tighter boundaries. Right. So the, the problem is people step outside their gender boundary. They're not acting like a girl. I think that over the last 50 years, 
that women's boundaries have expanded and men's have not so much. And so when they step outside their gender boundaries, they also face social sanctions. Mm. So all of the social science research shows, for instance, that when you compare men and women in leadership and men are collaborative and they ask a lot of questions, they are downgraded. If women take the center stage, direct the conversation, they are downgraded. So we're all somewhat victims of our gender roles. And this has been true since the second wave women's movement. Like, how do we help men understand that this gender role thing is as bad for them as it is for us? Are you seeing a difference with younger men? So again, Gen Y or Gen Z, is there a difference in how they perceive gender? Because I think they are so much more open-minded. Yes. Well, now that everyone pretty much is younger than I am, (laughs) everyone is in a younger generation. And here's the other thing I was going to say. There's a site called uh, 81cents.com where you go to learn your market value. Okay. And what this young woman who is a graduate of the Berkeley MBA program did is she put together a panel of people who give their time to evaluate people's resumes and what job they're looking for. And then they provide advice, not only in what they think they should be making, but also they'll provide negotiation advice, which is amazing. It's an amazing site. But there are more women than men, volunteers. And so I asked the founder, Jordan Sale, why is that? Why do you have so many men? And she said, because men want to do something. Men want to help with the wage gap, but they don't know what to do. Mm. And so this gives them something that they can do. And I find that very hopeful. Yeah, it's true. I've heard that a lot recently. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, but when it comes to the conversation around gender, gender equality, diversity, and inclusion, they're afraid of making a mistake, saying the wrong thing. So they play it safe and just step aside, which doesn't help anyone really. I have to tell you, I'm an old feminist, and now I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. (laughs) Gen Y had to teach me intersectionality when I kind of came back into a kind of feminist job. And I blogged at Forbes, and I wrote articles at CNN and other places. And so I became something of a spokesperson. And then the blowback started to come from young women. Mm. So it's always a shock. Gosh, it's always a shock when you age out of your own movement. (laughs) Now, I'd love to move on. I've set out three different scenarios, which I would love your thoughts on just to sort of work through how you might negotiate in each of these scenarios. But before we get into that, you've given us a definition of negotiation. But what is the basic structure or a framework that we can all use when we negotiate. So before you you start on your journey, how do you think about this stuff? So the first thing you do is find out what your market value is. Mm -hmm. And as you said earlier, there are a million sites now that you can go to. Some of them are very specialized. There's a site called Robert Half. They're recruiters and they have specialized reports for lawyers and tech and 
Other people have specialized reports for startups in general, how much equity, what percentage of the equity you should get at various stages of funding. So the very first thing is you need to understand, just as if you were selling your house or you were selling your car, I don't know how people sell cars now, but back in the day, we went to something called a blue book and it gave us an idea about what our car was worth. Today, we go to Zillow or some other source to figure out what the value of our house is. And so you have to do that. Yeah. Go do your homework. And to your point earlier, talk to men as well as women. Talk to men. Talk to men. If you go to the sites, some of the online sites actually break down male and female, Mm. and there is always a wage gap. Yeah. Pick the male number. Because on average, they earn 20, 30% more. So that's why we need to find that out. Exactly. So the next step is to do at least a little bit of research on what the interests of your, are are we assuming a job negotiation? Yep. We can move on to the first scenario, which is basically you've been made an offer as you're an employee and you're looking to negotiate your overall package, including your equity or employee options. Right. So the first thing you do is you also do a little research on what the needs of the corporation, the division, the team are, what are the challenges that they face? And That's probably pretty easy to figure out now since almost all employers are facing pandemic challenges. And what are the opportunities they need to seize? Because what you need to do is to dovetail what you can do for the company with what they need to have done, right? So it's just knowing who your negotiation partner is. And that is the basis of interest-based negotiation. So you want to know their fears, their desires, their preferences, their priorities, their missions, everything that you can know about them. And you can find all of that in the financial pages. So I'll generally just type Bloomberg and then the name of the company. And I get PR releases, statements of the chairman of the board. And so you can get some kind of general sense. You have to understand that the negotiation begins on your first interview. It's not when somebody offers you the job and you need to negotiate compensation. And very few people call me before they have the job offer in hand, which is late. Mm -hmm. So I wanna encourage people to understand that the negotiation begins when they're interviewing. Can you explain why that is, Victoria? Yes, because when you're interviewing, you can ask the people who are interviewing you what their interests are. So if it's the person who needs to hire you, you need to know what do they need personally from you. So I spent 25 years interviewing paralegals and clerical people and early in my career, law clerks, and then young associates, and then partners. And if someone came in and said, so what's on your plate? And I'd say, well, I have a three-month federal court trial in six months, and we're doing blah, blah, blah. If that person then says, interesting, that's a particular focus of mine, and I can see myself doing X on your team, and then might ask me more questions about where are the holes in my team? 
what do I most need? Do I need somebody who could take a great deposition? Am I going to need somebody who's an excellent negotiator? And that has a couple of effects. One, you're learning what my interests are. And two, you're interested in me. And I am going to be much more interested in you <laughs> if you are interested in me and what it is that I'm facing. Because half my associates don't care. They're focused on what they're facing and then I'm making demands on them. So anybody who comes into my office and asks me what I need, they go to the top of the list. It's somebody I really want. They're going to get a second interview. And then when they come back and they get a job offer, they're going to be able to use my interests kind of dovetailed with their experience to say, I think I'm going to help you deliver a victory for your client. And I'm special in these ways, but it's not so much that I'm special in these ways. It's that I can see myself doing X for you. Hmm. So I often ask people who I work with, do you drive revenue? And how much revenue do you drive? Or how much revenue will you be driving? Because you should monetize that and talk about that because it's about return on investment when you're hiring someone. It's not just about competitive market value. And also driving millions of dollars in revenue makes your number for your compensation seem small and modest. Yeah, I think it's about revenue. So can you demonstrate that you have been in the past and can be instrumental in driving revenue, but also can you demonstrate that you've been able to save costs? So you know, is there something that you can do? Do you have skills where you'll be able to save the company lots of money? And that's extremely valuable to any employer. Right. Drive revenue, save costs, burnish the brand, be a person who's going to become a spokesperson for the company, which is where you bring your network in, the connections that you have. A lot of that's on your resume. It's why you're there. But you want to tell the interviewer, you want to ask them what they need and then tell them if they hire you, you can help them accomplish that thing based on your past experience. So that's the beginning. So you know your market value, you learn your negotiation partner's interests, and then you, for women in particular, when you begin to talk about compensation, you lead with benefit. You put the first number on the table because again, all of the research shows that the person who establishes one end of the bargaining range first will pull his negotiation partner in that direction throughout the course of the negotiation. Mm -hmm. So here's advice that I hope people will heed. Don't give a range when somebody asks you for a range because people will always pick the bottom of the range yep. if you're selling. And the number that you give, you should add another 20 or 30% to it. Correct. And you should plan your concessions in advance so that you're not caught flat-footed because the next thing that clients ask is, what do I do if they say no? You're listing all the things, all the objections that they can come up with and you're preparing your response. Exactly. And women are particularly good at knowing why they're going to be rejected. Hmm. <laughs> there are never too many arguments that they've already made for themselves about why they can't earn what they want to earn. And so what I do is I have first, what I call an aspirational number, mm -hmm. something that they're probably not going to get, but is justifiable based on the data, which means here's another piece of advice. 
when you go to these sites that tell you what you should be making, do not pick the average. Mm. I don't know any of the women who talk to me who are average. Yeah. If you're calling somebody to ask them to help you negotiate, you are at the top of the bell curve. You're not at the middle of the bell curve. Mm. You know, if you want to be modest, pick 75%. If you're immodest, pick 90 or pick the top. That's where you start. And what I have my people say is I've benchmarked competitive compensation for this job. And I understand that competitive compensation is in the range of 150000 a year. And then stop and wait for the other person to say something. The beauty of doing that is you've used their own terminology, you benchmarked. You use the word competitive because employers want to present themselves as being competitive in order for you to come and join them. And you haven't asked for anything yet. You've just said, this is what you're gonna to have to pay anybody. This is what the competitive compensation is. And then they're either gonna to have to say, well, we don't pay competitively, which is something to explore, but it's also something that they're gonna to have to say, we don't pay competitively, but we'll let you work from home four days a week. Or we don't pay competitively this year because of the pandemic, but next year, if everything turns out the way we're hoping that it will, we're going to raise everybody's compensation because it's been frozen during the pandemic. So it's a good way to avoid that gender blowback yeah. without asking for something because we're still not supposed to ask for something for ourselves. And I think it's also a good idea to practice saying that number. So if, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you should practice saying it out loud over and over so that it might still feel uncomfortable, but you come across as being confident and very sure of yourself when you say it. Right. And women often ask me, well, how can I be more confident? And my response is, you're not entitled to be confident if you don't have a plan. You need a plan. I can't walk into a courtroom and convince a jury that they should exonerate my client or require the other party to pay my client damages if I don't have a plan. I can, yeah. And I can tell you, I'm not confident if I don't have a plan. That's such an important point, Vicky, isn't it? Because you fall back to the level of your training or your preparation. I can't remember who said that. This is a quote. So in these kind of critical moments where we are under pressure, right? We're under stress. If you've prepared, so just as you said, you've thought through all the scenarios, you've thought through what the employer might say to you to basically say no, and you've prepared your response and you've said it out loud, you've practiced it, you feel confident in the delivery, you know what you're going to say, you're not going to be caught off guard. Right. For my clients, I'd say we average like maybe a 20% increase over opening offer. I've had two or three clients get 100% more. Mm. I've had maybe a dozen clients get 50% more. Yeah, It seems like magic, but it, it's not. It's very systematic. And these are the soft skills that women bring into the workplace, into the commercial world. And people are like, oh, soft skills, you know, that's... Though seen as feminine, but soft skills save the world. Mm. <laughs> I have a phrase that soft skills are actually hard skills. 
<laughs> they are soft skills are harder. Yeah, they are harder. It takes a lifetime. I quit practicing law in 05. So it's been 15, 16 years. I still have to watch my adversarial. I, I still want to burn down the village. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I want to go on to the second scenario now, which is slightly different. And this is about negotiating with your male partner. So someone that you're in a committed relationship with, either as a boyfriend or your husband. And the scenario is that you'd like to agree that you be included in the long-term investing decisions. We know based on research that women tend to defer to their male partner for long-term investing decisions. They don't get involved anywhere near as much as they should, even though they would like to. And men, based on this particular research that I'm thinking about, which is uh, UBS research, Men are saying, yes, they'd like their wife and partner to be more involved. But sometimes men can feel threatened. The other side can feel a bit intimidated, maybe question whether they're trusted you know, as much if, if their partner wants to become much more engaged in, in the sort of long-term investing discussions or decisions. So what would you suggest in that case? What approach would you take there? Let me begin by saying I also don't want to learn how to fix a carburetor. <laughs> Nor do I want to manage our money. But probably my most difficult negotiations are with my husband over spending. I'm sure. And that's been a 20-year process. We're doing much better now. <laughs> we have completely different expectations about what things are worth. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have to go from personal experience here because... You're talking about an intimate relationship. Yeah. And so I would say that the first thing that I noticed about the way in which I was negotiating badly with my husband is I misinterpreted or I interpreted as controlling things he was trying to do to help me. So he wanted me to put my keys in the same place every day because I spent so much time searching for my keys and it irritated me. I have a friend who kept saying to me at the time, Steve is your Zen master. <laughs> What's going on with you? And I realized he was trying to help me because he loves me. And so I started putting my keys in the same place. So I think that, and then my life is much better. And I think that we women do tend to read men's tendency to problem solve and make suggestions when all we want them to say is, oh, I'm sorry, which is why we have girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> they're like, well, if you put your keys in the same place. So I think that the first thing we need to do is to drop preconceptions about whatever it is that's getting in the way of our being an equal partner with our spouses in many things, including finance. Mm. So I want to be an equal partner with my husband. And really, I'm not asking for a Jaguar. I'm suggesting that we valet park the car. And <laughs> trust me, we can valet park the car for the next 200 years and not significantly decrease our network. <laughs> <laughs> but I need to understand something about why that's problematic for him. 
and why it irritates me so much. Yeah. So the first thing I need to do, just like in any negotiation, is to ask him questions. And also in the male-female role thing, to ask him, is there a way I can help? I think one of the challenges for women is, especially if the male partner is well-versed in the world of finance that they've been investing for longer, is not knowing enough and they don't want to put themselves in that position, maybe. So how do you get over that? How do you make it okay to ask for help? Yeah. How do you make it okay for yourself to put yourself in that position where you're saying, you're putting your hand up, you're saying, I don't know this. I don't understand this stuff. I'm a complete newbie when it comes to money, investing. I'm willing to learn, but it's uncomfortable. That's really hard for me to answer because I am very comfortable saying, I can't do math. That's why I went to law school. You always justify it in some way. But yeah, I play to my strengths. So I don't like to ask for directions. <laughs> so let me just process it a little. I don't like to ask for directions because that does make me feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I like to know what I'm doing. And mm. so I think I just, again, need to think about, to start with, why does it bother me? And given the fact that asking for directions makes me feel stupid, which is true. Not knowing how to use an Excel spreadsheet does not make me feel stupid. Yeah. But asking for directions makes me feel weak and vulnerable. Some of that has to do with, oh my God, I'm going into therapy. Some of it has to do with my mother was completely unworldly. And mm. I definitely did not want to grow up to be my mother and not understand how the world worked. So I think that I incorporated just some like little quirks in my personality. So I would have to say, get over it to myself. That's as close as I can get. That's a question for a therapist. <laughs> Why you can't ask for help? Because my answer to the question is you ask for help. So you say, I want to help. I see that you're spending an enormous amount of your free time instead of going out for beer with the guys or playing with the kids. I see that you're spending an enormous amount of your free time on family finances. Is there anything I can do to help you? I guarantee you there's something, right? Mm. And then, so then you have like an entryway in. Mm. Not trying to dive in too deep, but find something to focus on, which is a step forward. Yeah. You can also learn what it is that they want. Like, what is it that you want? What is your financial goal? Mm. And why is it that we want to reach that financial goal? I mean, when I asked mm. him that, he said, well, what if you need a respirator? And this was before the pandemic. <laughs> I'm going, if I need a respirator, you know, Ambien in applesauce, just put me out. <laughs> yeah, put me down. That says so much about how your husband thinks about money. <laughs> One of the things he said to me early on was, I worry about small expenditures because I know I can't control big ones. And that was an admission of vulnerability on his part. And it made me feel more sympathetic. He let you in. Yeah, he let me in. And I think the only way that people let you in to places where they're vulnerable is by you asking them questions uncritically. 
and putting aside the judgments that you have. Well, you know, Steve's such a cheapskate or he wants all the power over our finances. It's like put it aside for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and have a conversation where you remember what it was like to date him and the reason you married him and ask caring questions and see whether or not you learn something important. These are such important points rather than focusing on the fact that you feel a bit unsure or uncomfortable. Think about the fact that your partner has his own vulnerabilities, insecurities, and actually just starting the conversation with that in mind. And you just don't know what you're going to find out, but it should strengthen your relationship whilst opening up the discussion and your knowledge about your long-term investing decisions that impact obviously the family. The same friend who told me that my husband was my Zen master was in this organization called Beyond War, which one of their main premises was someone has to be senior to the situation. Someone has to be willing to be in a position where they see both sides of the problem and they're not going to pick one or other of those sides. Mm. They're going to problem solve at a higher level than being a party to a dispute. So when I say world peace is the goal, <laughs> we have to work on our own backyard yeah. before we walk around with peace signs on placards. <laughs> yeah. And that's transformative. Learning negotiations transformed my life. Mm. It was absolutely transformative. And really it's peacemaking. It's finding a way to satisfy as many people as you can at the same time without assuming that you have to pummel them into submission in order to do so, which is why the business schools are teaching it. But there's still the men who say, yeah, but we get more. Mm. And yeah, the reason you get more is because you ask for more. And so maybe we should ask for more. But if we really don't need a billion dollars to get up in the morning, maybe there's some greed on that side that we just don't want to go to that we consider a darker place. And also, you might win this negotiation, but there may never be another, right? So you've potentially broken that relationship. Lawyers hire you for their practice. If they like you, they keep bringing you back. So for a while, I was doing these cases that are called Lemon Law cases where you buy a car and it's terrible from the start. Uh-huh. And then there, there's actually a law in California that lets you proceed to have, there are all these different remedies. So anyway, it's a lemon law case about the purchase of a $100,000 mobile home. And the parties were totally at loggerheads. I brought them together. We talked about who was gonna win or lose the case, how much it was gonna cost to settle the case. None of it had any effect. And then I talked individually to them just in general. And I did what you need to do when you start negotiating, which is to have small talk. Because you can ask a million questions, but until you have small talk, you're not going to find out stuff about people Mm -hmm. that they're probably going to reveal if you ask them, how are you? And do you love to camp? Or why did you buy this thing in the first place? So I was talking to the representative of the mobile home company and he said, and this was something I didn't know from just the few minutes I'd known everyone. He said, these are two gay men. 
they bought this mobile home on some kind of crazy whim. They're not campers and they're just trying to give the camper back or get some kind of, and there's just no way I'm gonna fold to that. So I said, okay, let me go talk to them. And I can't share what I've learned, right? It's mm -hmm. confidential when you talk out of. So I, I went back in and I was having small talk with the, now I realize gay men who bought this camper. And I learned in addition to the fact that they're longtime campers, that one of them was in the army and he was in Saigon in 1967. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the camper representative, I don't know how I found this out, probably more small talk, that he was a veteran. So I went back out and I, and I said to him, can I tell George about your Vietnam experience? And he said, yeah, sure. And so I went out and I said, you know, they're really longtime campers. And Kirk was actually his name. And I said, Kirk was in Vietnam in 1967. And the guy said, where? And I said, Saigon. He said, I was in Saigon in 1967. And I said, would well, you want to share that with him? And he said, yeah. And so we all went back in and they had this huge talk about what it was like yeah. to be in Saigon in 1967 and the case settled. Wow. I mean, it had nothing to do with any persuasive thing I was going to say about why it was better to settle or what the merits of the case were. They had to set aside preconceived ideas. Mm. They had to relate. Right. And they had a transformative experience before my eyes. The only thing I did to get there was to follow the process of starting with small talk, having small talk, asking a lot of questions and not focusing on my agenda, which is to say, it's crazy to spend all this money litigating the case when you have a 50% chance of losing and blah, 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 which is how most mediators settle litigation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move on to the third scenario now. Again, quite a different uh, scenario. So we're talking about a female entrepreneur and she's raising funding from investors and they know that she needs the money and they are pushing back quite hard, meaning that they're trying to push down the valuation of her company and therefore take more equity. But she is only a handful of female founders her business is focused, just as an example, on women's health or the femtech industry. And so she's addressing an underserved and underfunded problem in an underutilized market. How would you negotiate? What would you recommend to this female entrepreneur with these very tough investors? So I think that the first thing that you have to do in a business negotiation like that is to first make sure that you're negotiating with the right people. Mm. So there's a, these two men, Lax and Sabanius, they wrote a book called 3D Negotiation, and they talk about picking the right people in the right place at the right time, and then forming the right strategy and using the right tactics at the table. Uh, but the very first thing is, are you talking to the right people? Yeah. So they give an example of Office Depot needing to raise money to expand when Staples came on the scene. And everyone evaluated the market value of Office Depot pretty much the same. And it wasn't enough for Office Depot to do what it wanted to do and still have the principals maintain their control of the organization. 
So one of these brilliant Harvard negotiators told the Office Depot management, you should go to private investors, get them to sign on, and then go back to the venture capitalists and tell them, we've got X percent funding. Here's our projections for what we're going to do in the future. There are very few shares left, but for this limited time only, you can invest X for Y percentage and the deal was done. And that's a completely different strategy than trying to find yet another accountant who's going to value your business at a higher rate. Mm. So for a woman seeking venture capital funding, part of it would be there are venture capital firms that specialize in women. And to the extent they do that, I think you can be fairly confident that there's not going to be a lot of sexism affecting the decision. And then there's also just vetting the venture capitalists to know that they're in your field already, or they're aware of what you can do and who your competition is. I think there's a certain point at which competence and industry and planning supersedes gender. So early in my legal career, for instance, I remember there was a group of men who did not want me on the case, period. They said, we don't want a woman on the case. This was like 1983. And my boss, who's a very cool guy, said, well, that's too bad because she's the best associate I have. And if you don't like it, go to another firm. So they hired us. I took the first deposition. Not only did they come, they came with their wives. I was a third-year attorney, so I wasn't brilliant, right? But I prepared. And they were passing me notes of things that I should be asking. And one of them I turned over, and it was one of them had written to the other one, she's really good, you know, which told me two things. One, competence can trump gender. And there's nothing more beneficial than low expectations. Because I guarantee you, I was not great as a third year lawyer. I was probably just barely competent, but their expectations were so low that they thought I was brilliant. I really like what you said about be very careful who you sit in front of, who you spend your time with. You don't want to be pitching the wrong investors. And network and allies. Hmm. So, I mean, you should have allies. And among your allies should be people with much greater prominence than you. And as with all relationships, you should be serving your allies in some way because nothing helps more than to have a prominent man come in and say, these women are amazing. This is something I have invested in or I will invest in. And you'd be crazy to pass up this opportunity. So networking is the basis of all my business. Yeah. Having really good advisors, board of directors. Right. So sponsorship. Yeah. Which is people who are willing to put their political muscle behind you. Choosing those people, it's important to have a trusting relationship with them because you need to know that they are going to have your back. So yeah, preparation, allyship, networking. This is part of the problem with the racial wealth gap. People network only with their own people. 
so everybody right now needs to be consciously reaching out to people who are not your own people. That's right. I definitely diversified my networks. Mm -hmm. Actually, I did it when Gen Y started pounding on me a few years ago. <laughs> You're well ahead of the curve. Victoria, what do you think needs to change to eradicate the systemic bias, which often prevents women from maximizing their earning potential? Us. <laughs> so I'll go back to my tribe. It's just going to take us to speak up, to learn, to promote ourselves, to find the confidence. I guarantee you, the first time I walked into a courtroom, I wanted the floor to open up underneath me. You don't start confident. You start frightened and you go through that. If people are not willing to do things that are frightening for them, then they're not going to get very far. They're not going to get very far from where they're at. And in order to do that, you need sisters. We need to support one another. And I can tell you from the point of view of someone in the second wave women's movement who entered the legal profession at a time when there weren't a lot of women in it, that Gen X and Gen Y are like so much better than boomers at women supporting women. Yeah. And it's been just radical for me to have so many women supporting the work that I do and so many women who I support. I mean, I just feel like I'm in this, they call it a virtuous circle. Mm. You know, you sending me an email and saying you want to be on my podcast. Yeah. That's what it requires. Yeah. It is for all of us to be doing something generous for the rest of us because nobody's going to do it for us. The culture is not going to change if we don't change. I agree. There isn't enough of a business case to make to get over these kind of knee-jerk reactions to women. And it's so important that women support each other, that we support other women consciously, because it, there's still a long way to go before we change things so that things are equal and level. So supporting other women as much as you can, I think is a really, really important message. Yeah. And stop asking, especially women of color to speak for free because, you know, women's organizations do have less money than quote men's organizations, which let women in. But the Los Angeles County Bar Association has so much more money than the Los Angeles Women Lawyers Association. And so if you speak for the LA County Bar Association, you're going to get a higher speaking rate than if you speak for the women lawyers of Los Angeles. Well, the women lawyers of Los Angeles just need to figure out a way to raise the money to pay the speakers more and not expect their sisters to come in and do it for free for exposure. I can't take exposure to the grocery store. <laughs> Victoria, I want to say thank you. You've been so open and generous in sharing everything you have. You have a wealth of experience and it's been incredible to listen and to take all of this information in. Before we wrap up, what books or blogs or learning material would you recommend to women who are really keen to get good at this stuff? So 
there's a book called Women Don't Ask Negotiation and the Gender Divide that really started this whole negotiation thing. But let me tell you, it's depressing. <laughs> um, it's really depressing. The same women have something called Ask For It. Mm -hmm. And they call it a negotiation workout yeah. in, in a negotiation gym. That's great. Mm -hmm. There's a book that I love called Negotiation Genius that was written by a couple of Harvard people. They're men. Most books on negotiation written by men don't really address the women and marginalized minority problem. And their metaphors tend to be battle metaphors. But negotiation genius is genius. Mm -hmm. The Lax and Sabanius, also two of the Harvard brilliant guys, 3D negotiation. The good thing about that is the first chapter is online and all you need is the first chapter to like get their structure, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to do is plug somebody named Deepak Malhutra. Mm -hmm. He is also a Harvard business professor. He, this summer of the pandemic, made a bunch of three-minute videos on negotiation. I posted them on LinkedIn. They're fabulous. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a sci-fi novel. That's what he used his pandemic time for. <laughs> about a professor who negotiates peace with space aliens. Brilliant. And it is the most complex negotiation problem. Mm -hmm. My husband hates sci-fi. He can't put it down. And it's brilliant. You learn while you're having fun reading this story about the professor negotiating with space aliens. So it's called The Peacemaker's Code. It's great fun. It's on Amazon. Amazing. Buy it. You can learn negotiation without thinking that's what you're doing. That sounds great. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, how can they do that? I'm at shenegotiates.com. We have a newsletter. We also have a bunch of free resources. So we have pages and pages and pages of like checklists of the process that you and I were talking about today, which has more parts to it. So, and all that's free on the site. I have an allies page. So for women who would prefer to talk to a woman of color who's teaching negotiation or who's consulting or coaching on negotiation, those women are on my allies page. And for some reason, post-pandemic, I have a lot of male clients. Interesting. I don't know what they think she negotiates means, <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe they just think I'm referring to myself. Let me tell you, they, they have the same fears that women do. Mm. I mean, they're, they're worried about the same things and the process is the same and they're just as grateful and they're a pleasure to work with. So it's not just women. We need to get everybody into the peacemaking circle. Let's <laughs> pull them all inside the circle. Yeah. And promise them a tree house and cotton candy. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, it's a fantastic point to finish on. Thank you again, Victoria. This has been wonderful and we get to connect again and, and hopefully in person one day too oh yeah i have to get back to london i miss it thank you for joining me today if you would like to connect with me you can find me online at join the purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter jointhepurse.substack.com until next time goodbye